Hey, business building warriors, it's your buddy, Jim. It's another episode of Silent Sales Machine Radio. I've got a great guest for us today. Mr. JB Brown goes by Jonathan or JB. He's here with us. He's a dad in the My Silent Team community. He's in our Facebook group. He's got all kinds of exciting things going on. He's got some services even he's providing to our community. We'll be talking a little bit about that. His story is very compelling because it starts off with some interesting failures. He's failed with a franchise. He got conned. But he's a dad with a giving heart. Uh, he loves the Lord. He's a fellow believer. So we've got that in common. We just had a good time chatting a little bit. I figured, hey, it's time to turn the video camera on and capture some of this good stuff for the benefit of the listeners. So just a little groundwork here. If you're watching this on YouTube, hey, thanks. You're in the minority. Not very many people consume our content that way yet, but we think it's going to grow. Most people go to silentgym.com slash and they listen to our show on their favorite podcast listening app, like iTunes and that kind of thing. Hey, we love all of our listeners, no matter how you're consuming it. Just wanted to make you aware of that. However, you're checking this out today, there's another way to be checking it out if you're interested. Because uh, you can't watch YouTube while you're running or driving errands, right? But with, So there's a video and there's an audio. Go to the show notes, silentgym.com slash podcast. You'll see links to everything. And if you're on YouTube, hey, they're just want to make sure you knew there's an audio version only. But hey, JB, welcome to the show today, man. How are you? I'm doing well, Jim. I'm so excited to be here, man. It's great to have you on the show. We've, we try yeah. to make this work and there's so many guests, it's kind of like you hit and miss, hit and miss, and then you yeah. finally make it happen. You're like, oh, yay, finally, I got this guy on. Yeah. It's got quite a compelling story. And, and I, I want to turn the microphone over to you pretty quick here. You're a natural leader. You, you're very confident as an entrepreneur, but it hasn't always been that way. Yeah. I know you're in a great place now. So maybe you can tell us you know, a little about what's going on now, what's good. But tell us where it all got started and some of the some of the rough parts too. Yeah, absolutely. So, as many of us could relate to entrepreneurial journeys, um, when you see a success and you see someone who appears to have been my least favorite term, an overnight success, what you don't see, Jim, and, and you can relate to this, is the years of struggle and failure and difficult lessons that you have to learn over time to build up that muscle memory, which ends up creating the foundation for whatever success you then you then have. So for me, I started as a kid being very entrepreneurial. So little little things like, you know, I grew up in a, a little small mill town up in Maine. And if, if you wanted sneakers, you had to chip in in our house. And so whether it was a paper route or raking blueberries or working on a lobster boat, whatever it was. But as an adult, my first heavy foray into, you know, traditional entrepreneurship was um, my wife and I had had looked at a lot of different models and we decided on buying a franchise. And the, the logic that we were using at the time was we felt like there were some things that we just didn't know and we didn't quite understand. And there wasn't a great deal of confidence around operations and some things. And we thought, well, with a franchise, you would think that, um, and this is really the way that franchises are sold. It's an existing business model that you just have to go in and kind of replicate the business model and you'll be successful. Well, we cashed in at the time our, what was our life savings, you know, did the whole 401k buy and all of that, which in retrospect was a terrible idea, but, but uh, that's a whole nother podcast, but we did, we went all in. And what, what I didn't know at the time, and, and it took some time to figure out was, so we bought a franchise location from the franchisor and it was one of their corporate locations and it was in the kind of electronics and cell phone space. And what we couldn't have known was, the books that they showed us based upon that we made our purchases based upon turned out to, to not to not be accurate. 
And so the business from day one, we thought it was profitable from day one. It, it took very little time to realize that it was heavily, heavily, heavily in the red. It wasn't making any money. So we didn't do our due diligence, right? So that's a lesson that I learned from that. Number one, was there some dishonesty on their behalf? Sure. But at the end of the day, the buck stopped with me because I should have done more due diligence and I should have been more relentless with, with asking tough questions. And I, and I didn't. So that said, so I own that. We, in about nine months, lost every penny because at the same time, the operations weren't profitable. And I'll give you an example. So this is a, a relatively small box in a box concept with a retail location. And I inherited a manager that they were paying $45,000 a year. And you're a business guy, so you know pretty much right away to manage a small two-person retail location. That never made sense. So over time, you know, we, we continued to pay employees, had to let that person go, just eliminate the position. And I never wanted to buy myself a job. That was never the intent. And unfortunately, with a franchise, that ended up being precisely what I did. So, so you hear that so often, too. People get into franchising, think it's a business investment. It's not. You've just bought yourself you know, 8 p.m. phone calls. Hey, no one else can do this. You got to do it. Sorry, family. Hate to interrupt dinner again in the car, going down, saving the day. You know, it's just like, yeah. and, and let alone the people who show up or the people who are sick and now you deal with personality conflicts. And yeah, I mean, you're jumping in with both feet. You better know what you're doing, man. It, it's sad. The franchise model has been oversold, I think, just in general in our in our culture. I mean, you, there's a lot more failure than success from my vantage point. And I, man, I hate that you guys went through it, but you know, please continue the story, man. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we did get the business to a point where it was break even. And, but in doing that, we were floating and trying to do the right thing. We were paying our suppliers on time. We were honoring our commitments because that's what we, we believe was the right thing to do. We were paying employees when we didn't really need them at times because we had made a commitment to them for a certain number of hours. And some of these folks were working their way through college or doing other things. And we just felt like for us, it was just taking our misfortune and, and our bad decisions and, and, and our bad luck in some cases and expecting other folks to pick up that tab was never a, an option for us. So ultimately we did end up unloading that business, sold it. And Jim, I remember the night that I unloaded the business and I remember laying in bed and I remember having a, a silent conversation with, with the Lord, as I often do in just normal day-to-day things, but especially when something big has happened in life. And I can remember being at my lowest point because I remember two voices. One said, man, you have made it. This is such a failure. You've, you've spent all of your family's money. You're a failure. You're, and here's the, here's the phrase that came out. And, and the interesting thing is what happened immediately after. The phrase that came into my mind was, your family would be better off without you. And it wasn't but a split second later that a, a voice that I, I can only believe to be God, depending upon what your views are, you, you may have a different opinion and, and that's okay. But I believe it was the voice of God and it was immediate and it was, whoa, whoa, that is, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who I made you to be. This is just a part of your story that you don't understand right now. But it was such an immediate and strong reaction to the thought that it had come right before it that I knew, okay, I need to get up. I need to you know, get down on my knees and pray for guidance and, and view this as the lesson that it is, even though I didn't understand the pain behind it, why we were going through it, and, and what I would then turn out to, to do with that lesson, and just decided to move forward. And I took 
a few weeks, probably a month or so to grieve candidly, because it's a loss like that. In some ways it's, it's like losing a member of your family when, when something like that happens. I think those of us who are entrepreneurs, maybe in an unhealthy way, sometimes we can equate our success and our worth with our, our business ventures. And, yeah, and especially as guys, I think we find a lot of our identity in the answer we give yeah. when people say, what do you do for what a living? <laughs> right. And we like, yeah. Well, that's who I am. No, it's not who no. <laughs> you are. It's no. what you do. It's how you serve others. Your character shines through in that, but it's not who you are. And that's, again, a whole other interesting podcast episode. But I think us as guys struggle more typically than, than the ladies. I mean, I'm sure there's ladies that do as well, but it's more of a guy thing. We have, we kind of come built with a lot more pride of like, you know, oh, this is what I do, you know, like, wow, yes. look at me. And if somehow that was gone now, we think less of ourselves so rapidly. But that weight of the provide and protect role as fathers, you know, just uh, it, it hits us differently. We're like, am I providing and protecting right now? I don't know. I'm familiar with that. You know, the entrepreneur's journey is full of those. You know, you've seen that jagged line graphic that goes yes. around on Facebook. It's like, yay, I'm winning. I love being an entrepreneur. <laughs> what am I thinking? I should have never dropped out of school. Uh, Oh, yeah. Look at the great day I just had. I'm, you know, it's going to be roses from here on out. And then like, yes. I should go get a real job the next day <laughs> because this is all falling apart. That's the journey. Yeah. And if you tie your identity to that, oh my goodness, it can be, it can be a very, very rough road. But it's, it's no joke, no matter what career choices you've made, to be to the point where there's just kind of nothing left in the bank right now. What's mm-hmm. next? That's a scary place to be for any of us. It really was. And I'll tell you something that's very interesting. So two things happened within a month or so of one another. I received a new job offer in my corporate career, and I've been in medical consulting, medical sales for, for a long time. And I received a, a, an offer that was unexpected. I wasn't looking. I was really just sort of licking my wounds, trying to figure out, okay, what's, what's going to be next and, and processing the loss of, uh, of, of that nest egg. And I got a call from a recruiter, and, and it was unusual and that there really wasn't an interview process. Someone who knew me and who I hadn't spoken to in a long time reached out and said, we're doing a startup. It's well-funded. We'd like to bring you in. Here's the salary, which was very generous and awesome. But here's stock options, which is a little unusual, but they were offering stock options because it was a startup. The amount of money they were offering over two years was $4 in some sense away from the amount of money that we had lost. Wow. That's incredible. Awesome. <laughs> so took that job and it was a four-year vest. So it wasn't all going to come you know, at once. Sure. But it made me feel like, okay, okay, I can, I can begin to see there's, there's a plan here and I don't entirely understand it. I, and I don't even know where I am on the trajectory of this plan, but I, I know there's a plan. So, okay. And, and I can also remember a few experiences I had with some mentors of mine who said, look, you, you got knocked down, but you're a born entrepreneur. It's who you are. Just because your first venture didn't go very well and you went big, as I often do. That doesn't mean you stop. So began to start looking for what what was going to be next. And I was in a Barnes and Noble. So if I have free time, with I have three little kids and and, and, a, and a bit busy. But when I do have free time, I like to just go read. Sometimes I'll read spiritual things, business, personal development. But in this case, I sat down with a uh, it was a Tony Robbins book. But it was interesting to me because it was a Tony Robbins book on finance, which was I, I couldn't quite put those two things together. So anyway, I picked it up, and the gentleman sitting across from me had his book open and he looks at my book and says, Oh, that's a, that's a great book. I read it. So we strike up a conversation after about an hour. It turns out this guy 
says that he had um, he had sold several e-com companies. A young guy, he was in his mid twenties, had sold several e-com companies and was was retired and he just helped other e-com. And and at the time, Jim, and you're going to laugh at this because I know that this has been a topic in MSC. He's we're talking. He goes, "Wow, you you pick things up very quickly. You should try e-com." And my immediate reaction was, "I don't know how to code." I don't even really, like, I barely know how to turn on a computer. I, can, I can't build a website. I could never no, do e-commerce, right? No, I don't know how to do any of that. I don't know how to write programs because, of course, back then I didn't know. And I think a lot of folks listening to this might feel the same way. Like, oh, e-commerce, it's scary. I don't know how to do those things. Well, so we, we talked further and he convinced me that you really, you just have to have decent general business exp- sense and experience and uh, and you can figure out the rest. So we, we he'd offered to mentor me and we worked through a few ideas. And after about, probably three, four weeks. And remember, this is me coming off of a, a very bad business experience. So my, my guard is up anyway, more so than it ever had been. And um, I had just researched and researched and researched and finally figured out, okay, this is legitimate. And I had come on Amazon, figured out Amazon and Amazon FBA on my own. And uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I get this email one morning from him saying, hey, I'm so glad you're going to do this. And uh, what we need to do is, um, is to launch a product together so that you know how to do it. So, okay, this sounds great. Turns out the second email was, if you'll just send me $15,000, <laughs> I'll help you select a product and uh, it'll be yours, but you'll have to also pay for that product. So of course he's trying to you know, sell me as a guru. So immediately in and of itself, I'm not thinking scam yet. It was a red flag. So I started asking him more in-depth questions about what products he's launched, what success has he had. I had found a couple of articles on him on Forbes, and it turns out it was Forbes Online. And I don't know if you know this, but you can actually pay someone to do a freelance article about you, and Mm -hmm. it'll get picked up with these things. And it looks legit when it's really just made up information. So that's what this was. This guy was, uh, you know, long story short, he was trying to to, to scam folks. And I even traced his, his house here in, in, in Georgia. And there were 12 or 13 other people living in this house that uh, had 25, 30 LLCs. And I think that's just what they did. They just went around and tried to sell themselves as, as, as gurus. So that was a no-go, but here's the silver lining. So the process I went through to vet if e-commerce was a good idea, I had learned enough to know he wasn't legitimate. Sure. The opportunity was. And, and I, I came to believe that the life goals I had for my family to bring me home. You like to say, bring dad's home. Mm-hmm. So the life goals I had for my family. And for me, it wasn't that I, I didn't want to travel ever. It was just, I wanted to have the autonomy to determine who I worked with and under what conditions. And so when we finally decided e-commerce is legitimate, we meaning my wife and I, cause she's, she's very involved in all of our decisions, not in the operations, but in the big decisions, we came across a few groups and they were a bit, Forgive this phrase. They were a bit guru-y, and I, I just I tend to not um, I tend to not resonate all that well <laughs> with those types of. And then I came across MST, and um, it was probably three, four weeks, months into MST, and I did the same thing. I, I think that most of us do. Started with arbitrage and had some success. Had some you know not so great purchases. I still have a storage unit with some some of the not so great purchases. <laughs> like, like a lot of us in our garage or somewhere, we have a bunch of Shopkins or whatever. Yeah, but. I went to ASD in Las Vegas, the wholesale show, and spent some time uh, walking through there and, and had met Ryan and Jenny, uh, as well as Abe Ortolani, and just started making friends with folks and, and, and trying to be a sponge as best I could to learn uh, and learning inside the forums and, and probably pestering people, just being <laughs> annoying with, with questions. 
And um, it didn't take me very long to realize that as someone who wanted to build a sustainable business that was replicable and had equity, meaning that it was worth something that I maybe would sell it someday. Sure. Arbitrage didn't seem like the way I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And so I started with probably the folks when I started getting into private label, I started with what, what a lot of folks do, which is buying relatively generic products and just repackaging them. And that did work to some degree. Um, I had some good luck with that in, in the, the Q4 of the first year I did it. Actually, I ended up doing six figures in that first Q4, which blew my mind because this was my, okay, the concept is proven, right? Um, this works. This is legitimate. This is not uh, a side hustle necessarily. It can be, but it also can be for someone who, who thinks like a business owner, it can be an absolutely juggernaut of an enterprise that's a, that's a lot of fun. And so I ended up going to China. So, so I have two business partners now. So let's fast forward a little bit because my story gets even more crazy and interesting. I'm now a partner in a, a company called Hickory Flats with um, two other people, Tim Jordan and Kate Ames. I met Tim and Kate at CES. So I met Tim and Kate. Really? Didn't yeah. realize that. Yep. In uh, Orlando. Not the, it, so the one that was in Orlando. Sure. A few years ago. Yep, that's where we met. And um, it's not like we went into business immediately together, but we just, you meet people. And if you don't go to conferences, guys, if you're listening to this and, and you're new, or even if you're not new, maybe even especially if you're not new and you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't want to go to conferences because most of the content will be, uh, I already know it. I would encourage you to rethink that because the, this business, in my experience, runs on what I call the speed of relationships. So the speed and velocity of your business and your business's growth will be directly correlated to how willing you are to put yourself out there, network, and meet with other people who are doing this together with you. Because it can be... You're absolutely right. Well, I mean, I call it the only metric that matters. If, if I had 30 seconds with you to determine your potential for success in business in general, mm. I only need to ask you one question. Mm. And it may take you a little while to answer it, but I can ask my question in 10 seconds. And depending on what answer you bring back to me, I can tell you your potential for future success in business. Mm. The simple question is, how many people could you call at three in the morning and they would say, I'm there for you? Yes. Whatever it is you need, whatever I can do, I'm there for you. I'm not talking what are the quality of those relationships. There's mm. going to be some real, obviously, there's going to, those are all going to be quality relationships. I'm saying how many people are on that list? Show me the names. Mm. And if that list is two or three people, I'm sorry, but you've got a long road ahead of you to succeed in a big way in business. I agree. If that list is, you brainstorm for a few hours and you're still adding names, Congratulations, my friend. You're an unstoppable force of entrepreneurial success. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. With that, with that one question, I can learn a lot about where you're at. And that's one thing I'm always checking in myself. Am I building these kind of relationships mm. where people know I genuinely care for them? I'm there for them. And in return, they're there for me and we could do something together. Mm. Uh, and, and another thing we say around here all the time, JB, is the, the answer to every challenge is a person. So if you run into roadblocks and you're finding, man, I just can't get around that. I can't get over it. That's because you haven't met the right person yet. Your sphere of influence isn't big enough yet. Yes. So yes, I completely agree. Go to events and yes, sit in on the more interesting 
pieces of the content, but it is a hundred percent. And that's why we build our events around very intentional relationship building. We don't bill it as groundbreaking content. Content is going to be great. It is going to be cutting edge and good, but it's stuff you can pick up on YouTube after the event too, or, you know, pay, pay a few dollars for the package after the event. It's the people. So I just wanted to interject that that completely resonates with what I'm observing. This isn't theory. You know, to me, there's two pieces of proof I can present to the jury at this point. One is the most financially successful culture in world history. You could call it the the longest longitudinal study in the history of the world is the Hebrew people. They use these biblical principles and relationships are key. The other one is if I look at the list of leaders in our community who are doing great things to a person, they all understand the importance of building relationships. Yes. It's, you know, there's my evidence for the jury. You decide. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's very strong anecdotal evidence for sure. Sure thing. Yeah. So we're at CES and I meet these these two folks and we just resonate. We we find that we are on a similar wavelength from a thought perspective. And we don't know what that's going to happen. We don't know what that's going to turn into. We don't know how it's going to work moving forward or, or, um, you know, what that will lead to, but we just sort of connect and we, we start pinging back and forth and we kind of go our separate ways. Well, I ended up deciding that in order to grow as quickly as I wanted to within my own business at the time, I needed to go to China. And the reason for that was I wanted to cut out the number of middlemen that we will find. Even if you're sourcing on Alibaba, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of middlemen between you and your end user, uh, your end manufacturer. And I wanted to try and find a way to just really accelerate what I was doing. So I went to China. And Tim Jordan had been running trips specifically to China for a while. And I just built the trust with him. And I knew he was just a good guy, similar values, similar family stage. I was like, I'm going to go with you. So we went. And the first time I went, I brought back with me, not literally at the same time, but I ended up bringing back almost a container load, a shipping container load full of various products because I had never in my life seen and I'd been to ASD, I'd been to America's Mart in Atlanta because I lived there, and I'd certainly been in places where I'd seen products. I'd never seen anything like this. Iwu is, it's just a different animal. And yeah. it's five miles, four floors. And Tim and I did the math. In three days, my eyes crossed over, I didn't stop at every one of them, but my eyes crossed over four million products, minimum, four million. And of those four million, 40% of them were things I'd never seen before. Didn't even know what they were. That's what I was looking for because I didn't necessarily want to take what Jungle Scout told me and uh, and launch it and be the 25th person selling this widget because mm-hmm. then it becomes almost like an arbitrage challenge sometimes where you're you're racing to the bottom. Yes. And you know, let me let me just challenge the listeners on one of the big false premises that's floating around out there. The game isn't finding the cheapest version of the hottest product. That's not the game. Now you can make some money. You can make a nice six figure income there, but there's a ceiling to that and you'll be working your tail off. Mm -hmm. The future is in finding products that just aren't out there yet. And as we're going to dive into a little bit here in a minute, JB, driving Mm -hmm. your own audience to that product. Yes. It's never been easier before. And you're a student of our, some of our audience building strategies, our proven audience formula. You're doing some cool stuff there as well. So we'll get into that. But yeah, I love that you pointed that out. The stuff that's just not there yet. Some people have the impression that Amazon's so huge that they've got everything now. And there's a book out there called The Everything Store. That is the goal. Mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos has this wild idea and he's well on his way on that journey of creating The Everything Store. But there's still tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of products that aren't 
there yet. Mm-hmm. We'll make millionaires out of the people that bring them to market yeah. and solve problems that, you know, the long tail, I've referenced it a few times in recent episodes of the podcast, long tail, meaning there's a lot of people out there that aren't shopping for the big brands and the stuff that's showing on TV commercials. People yeah. aren't watching TV the way they used to. People no. are buying these little niche brands. Yeah. And you, why not you? Mm-hmm. Why not you? Right. So that's just me interjecting into your story a little bit. I'm excited to see where we go next because I haven't heard this story before myself. So I'm, I'm eager to hear what happens. Yeah. So, and I agree with everything you just said, by the way, and, and that's where we're going. Right. So the days of finding a widget that you, and this worked for a long time. I want to be clear here. I'm not throwing, you know, sand at anybody that Amazon is a dynamic animal. And so is e-commerce. And absolutely, you have, you're constantly having to be aware of trends and where we're going. In the early 20th century, there was already an everything store, right? It was Sears. Sears market cap in early the early 20th century was actually significantly more than Amazon was now when you adjust for inflation. Exactly. And you could you could buy a house from Sears back then mm-hmm. and they would bring it to you and they would they would put it up. So we've seen this before. So in Yiwu, the first time, I come back with this container load full of merchandise, and it's every single thing there are things that are, do not exist on Amazon, the things that I have not seen. And folks always ask me when I tell that story, well, what, you know, which tools did you use for research? My gut. There's no tool for this. <laughs> no, my yeah. gut, instinct. Mm-hmm. And I will say this, when, before I went, I did do some research, but it was in a different way. We, we tend to do things, Tim, my partner, Kate and I, we do things differently when it comes to launching private label than most folks in that we're looking for social cues. And, and actually, if you look all the way back to one of the earlier products within Proven Amazon course, it was Brett's Proven Performance Inventory, PPI. Really, what we've done is we've taken that and we've, we've, we've retrofitted it and we've moved it forward and we've applied it to the way that we go about finding great private label ideas in combination with audience building. And so I'll look at Etsy, Pinterest. I'll look at Home Shopping Network because there's probably no one better in the world when it comes to selling a widget and writing great sales copy than Home Shopping. So we look for trends more macro than just Amazon. Amazon's an outlet, right? My, my biggest pet peeve is when people say, and I don't mean this in a mean way. I'm always you know, joking to them about it, but I'm really serious trying to get them to understand this. What do you do? Oh, I have an Amazon business. Are you, do you have an Amazon business or does Jeff Bezos have an Amazon business? Exactly. You ideally should have a products and e-commerce business, and even that should be diversified. And you're, you're one of the best folks I know when it comes to evangelizing. Hey, let's make sure that we have multiple streams of income and, and we're looking at something not just in one small area so a, a digression, but that's a you know you you had to interject. One of my pet peeves is when folks only think of themselves as an Amazon seller, because to me that presents an enormous amount of risk to you and your business. You're absolutely correct. Yes, it, it, multiple income streams are important because we're beholden to the platforms that we're playing on. Yep, we we are there out of their kindness and generosity. If you want to look at it that way, they don't owe us anything. When we no. signed up that 18 page. Terms and services and five point font that you didn't read said there's a line in there. You can go back and find it. There's a line in there that says, if we wake up grumpy one day and decide we don't like you, we can make you vanish from our platform forever. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it happens. You signed that document (laughs) when you signed up for their platform. So keep that in mind. If you're going to play with the big boys, oh, it's it's a beautiful. I mean, we've got seven figure 
incomes in our community from people who just go out and buy stuff cheap off the store shelf and flip it on Amazon. Absolutely. Wonderful. But you have to know in the back of your head at all times, you're on somebody else's playground and they can, they can shut you down and kick you off anytime they want to. The odds of that happening are slim and you can probably fix it if that happens, but multiple income streams, get your own products at some point. And I just want to throw this out there too, JB. You mentioned PPI. People are going, oh, what's that? Is there another course I got to buy? It, that's all part of the proven Amazon course. Yes. Okay. If you buy the proven Amazon course, one of the modules is PPI, proven performance inventory, where we teach you how to get Amazon to tell you what they need. We call them golden gaps, which is yes. terminology Brett and I came up with to describe this process of saying, hey, every day on Amazon, there's, it just do this, listener, do this test. Find somebody who shops on Amazon a lot. Like in, in our house, that would be my wife, right? I call her, if she was a transformer, she would be Amazon Prime, right? She shops <laughs> a lot on Amazon. And I tell her all the time, like if you're in there and you type in a search and nothing relevant comes up, please tell me. Because yes. odds are there's about a million other moms out there typing in that same phrase today and nothing relevant's coming up. Yes. Guess what? With just a little bit of testing, I can determine if that's a golden gap and I could go find a product. Maybe I don't have to go to, to China. Maybe it's you know just putting a bag, taking a product out of one bag and putting it into my own bag. Yes. It could be that simple. But now I've got a listing that meets the demand that's there. So Amazon yes. is telling me basically what needs they have that they haven't filled yet. That's the PPI concept. And it's a beautiful course. So I'm glad you brought that up as well. Thanks, JB. But you're doing a good job of staying on your story with all these little interruptions too. I appreciate that, man. Oh, no problem. I love it. So we're in the with that first time. I bring back the products. And the interesting, the most interesting thing begins to happen, which is normally everyone wants to talk about, especially with launches on Amazon specifically. And this is, this is true of other platforms, but it's very true for Amazon. There's different tactics that folks will use to, and, and, and good men and women can argue about what these tactics are, but one of the most common is the whole giveaway concept. And for those of you who are not familiar with the concept of a giveaway on Amazon, when you're launching a product, essentially, it used to be that Amazon's machine learning would give you some credit if you just increased sales velocity from the moment you launched. And they didn't really care how you did that. So the number of units that you moved, you know, take a 30-day window, and then it's just a dividing, you know, divisible issue. But what folks would do is they would create, there were services you could pay where you would pay them X amount of money and they had these large communities and they would go and purchase your products and they would then often go leave reviews. But they couldn't explicitly say that because that is against terms of service. The giveaways weren't. But most of the time, even now, you hear folks say, well, gosh, you're going to have to do a lot of giveaways to get ranked on page one. So all of us are looking to get our products as close to you know, the top of page one as we can. And depending on the niche that you're in, uh, that becomes more and more important. There are some pages, some products where if you're on page two, you're still selling a ton of products and you're making a great living. But there are some niches where you really ideally would want to be on page one. So here's what's interesting. With the products that I had selected, not all of them, but about 65% of them, they were selling out faster than I could get data to figure out how people were coming upon those products, what the session percentages were. So when someone looked at, a, at one of my pages, how often did they purchase that product versus just go there and decide not to purchase the product? And that's some of the most valuable information you can get as a, as a retailer. And, and that's really what we all are. So if you're, if you're selling products on Amazon or eBay or Shopify, I want to challenge you to think of yourself as 
a retailer and a business person, no matter how small you are, because you are. That's exactly what you are. So our challenge became, we were doing giveaways, Jim. We weren't doing any of these sort of black hat tactics. And, and forgive again, I'm using another esoteric phrase. If you don't know what black hat is, there are a lot of things that folks will do on Amazon that sort of game the system, little, little tips and tricks that people will fake reviews was a big one that Amazon recently cracked down on. We didn't do any of that. We just mm-hmm. tried to pick products that we would buy, that we felt like were great products that we didn't see on Amazon, that there was a gap for, uh, as you said, a golden gap. And we, we put them on there. And now we did a good listing. We did good photography. We didn't, we didn't um, kind of try to cut corners on those two things because if you have a great listing that's written well and you have great photography and, and a product people want, those are really the three things that you need. So those products started to sell well and they were selling so well that I realized I probably need to go back to China again because I don't know if some of these products are going to be trendy, if there's going to be a curve where all of a sudden they pop and then they start to fall off. So I need to add to these catalogs as I began to think of them, because I also was thinking, I want to sell these brands off in, you know, three or four years. And so we even went so far as to do market research on the brand names we chose and crowdsourcing the art that we used for the brand names so that we knew which brands would be more likely to appeal to this demographic or this demographic in hopes that it would just make it easier for us to sell those. So the second trip I went to you, Tim and I are sitting uh, and Kate Ames went as well. And we're just sitting around one day and out of nowhere comes this incredible, just dawn of realization from all of us. We need to partner up and we don't entirely know what that looks like. So it took about two weeks to figure it out. And, and, and as it turned out, Kate and I both became full partners in, in Hickory Flats. And so now at the same time, Tim is a very visionary guy when it comes to sourcing. And, and we share a similar heart for wanting to help entrepreneurs change their life and to become better at whatever it is that they choose to do and to do it in a way that is above board and just brings value to folks. But at the same time, if there's a way for us as entrepreneurs to make a positive impact upon the life of other people with our businesses, man, that's a, that's a win-win that's better than you could hope for. So Tim had a lot of experience in Central America because of a kind of a previous life of his. And I had a, a decent amount of experience from a missionary perspective in, in Central Latin America and some other places. And um, Tim had been in the early stages uh, of creating an office. We actually have an office in Central America, brick and mortar location there. We also have one in China. And so we were already doing the China sourcing trips. And those are great for a very specific thing. But we began to realize there are these huge co-ops of, of folks in Central America, Guatemala in particular, where they make the most beautiful products that you've ever seen. Anything from leather goods to hand-woven goods, which could be turned into any number of things, to wooden products, coffee, which I know you know something about. And it just struck us both in the heart. Uh, not only is there a great business opportunity here to, to begin to help private label sellers launch a different type of product and a different type of brand than you would necessarily do from China, because China tends to be more commodity driven. Whereas we were looking for an opportunity to help folks create a more story driven brand because story driven brands tend to be more sticky with folks. Mm -hmm. Think of Tom's shoes. Most folks listening to this have heard of Tom's shoes. Those are 80 cent shoes. They don't cost very much money to make at all, but Tom's shoes whole business model and their whole ethos is 
You buy a pair from us, we give a pair to someone who could use them. Warby Parker is another good example of a company that makes just glasses. There's nothing particularly special about Warby Parker's glasses, but their model was very well crafted in the story world where they said, we're going to send trained opticians all over the world into third world countries where they don't have eyeglasses. We're going to teach them how to give an eye exam. And then we're going to give these people eyeglasses. So they've created these awesome brands based upon a heart to serve. We said, well, how can we do that? And what we came up with was three of our biggest brands now in our private label business are products that are made in Central America. And what that looks like is a group of 80 women getting together and essentially creating a micro enterprise where they're able to do custom orders. They're able to build whatever it is that you need as a company. And because these are handcrafted, hand-stitched, for example, you know, leather bags, the same product made in China for a laptop case, for example, if you had a laptop leather bag, if you can imagine what I'm talking about, would sell for you know, $99 to $110. It's just a very commodity machine-made product, inferior quality leather. Well, that same bag made in Guatemala by a local group of artisans that's hand-stitched that takes 20 man hours to make with beautiful leather. And you can tell the story of the, of the people who made it, the village they live in, and the changes that are happening in those folks' lives. That's selling in a boutique for $900 because mm-hmm. the only real difference is, yes, the materials are a little bit better, but the best story wins because yeah. that's what we resonate with. So that's the other thing we're doing now. And we are so excited because we we have such a healthy respect for my silent team. And our story is so much rooted in beginnings with this community that we said, man, there has to be a way for us to bring some, some value. So we ended up creating some, some educational content for sourcing in China and Central America. And we also have some really cool exclusives as well that folks will learn about soon around if they, if they want to build a brand, uh, they can come with us and we'll teach them how to do exactly what we've done in Central America. And, and for the listener's sake, I'm, I'm going to fill in a couple gaps here and then tell a little bit about <laughs> what I know and why I'm so excited about Guatemala. But for the sure. listener's sake, if you're watching on YouTube, there's a link in the notes to this video. If you're listening to this right now, go to silentgym.com slash podcast. We'll have a link to help you get more information on tapping into some of these opportunities that JB is presenting to us right now. But JB, I'm pretty sure you know, but many listeners may not, but we lived in Guatemala in, in uh, Antigua for a Antigua. A hundred yeah. days. We were there for a hundred days as we were adopting our now eleven-year-old daughter when she was an infant. Because mm. Guatemala allows adoptive parents to live in country while they finalize the adoption process. They look at it as a way to, you know, if they any way they can get people to stay longer in country, they're like, yeah, cool. Because we had to, you know, we had to rent a place, and and I remember in our house right now has multiple artifacts from Guatemala. There's these beautiful yeah. hand-carved statues. I actually brought back several bags of them, as many as I could legally bring back through U.S. Customs, yeah. and flipped these $10, $15 items for 90 to $300 when I got home. Yep. And I've always had in the back of my head, well, this is an opportunity that at some point we need to go back and tap into. And it looks like you guys are kind of blazing a trail um, because to do this on your own, you're going to run into some logistical challenges. You've got to yes. get the stuff out of the country. And that is a trick. I know that's a trick. Mm. But it's a country where, what's the currency? The quetzale, right? Yes. You know, where $1 is a lot of quetzales and you can Ah. get a lot of great, and you can make some people very happy. I'll I'll use this illustration. Now, it has been about 10 years ago that we were in country, but 
we had a lady who came to our house every day while we were there. She cleaned the whole house. She did all the laundry. She cooked, she shopped and cooked our meals, great, fresh, home-cooked meals every day. Stay, stayed until just before dark every day, came just after sunrise every day, breakfast made. Her, the amount of money we paid her that she was completely thrilled with was $5 a day. Yes. $5. She was beyond thrilled. Now we gave her a whole lot more than that. She had a special needs daughter who needed some special medication. We took care of that family and blessed them while we were there. But that just tells you how different economies can truly benefit from that infusion of the US dollar. And I don't know what the conversion rate is right now or what it's like on the street. It's been 10 years since I was there, but I know there's still a big gap where the US dollar can make a lot of things happen very quickly. And it, especially if you're an Amazon seller and you're like, hmm, I'm looking for that interesting niche, we're going to put together a trip. And I, my instinct is the first person to sign up for that trip will be my wife because <laughs> if she could live anywhere, it would be Antigua. Antigua. I'm pretty yep. sure. I mean, she uh, just, and the kids have fond memories. It's just a beautiful old Spanish city in the middle of Guatemala, near, near Guatemala City and have very fond memories. I think I referenced it a little bit in the Silent Sales Machine book, actually. Mm. But it was quite an adventure for our family. I won't go too far into the details. But if you guys have figured out how to get profitable products out of Guatemala, yeah, there's huge, huge potential there for sure. And you'll be changing the lives. You know, one thing you didn't say, I'll say it for you without even knowing the numbers, those 80 ladies that are working on those products, they're proud of the work they do. They're yes. thrilled at the pay rate that they're receiving. Otherwise, in a country where it's hard to find and, and they're going home proud every night of, of what they're accomplishing, what they're being paid. And you're changing those ladies' lives. I, I just know because the alternative that they have is, you know, that like when we left, the lady that we were, that was taking care of our house, she didn't have other work. They right. lived off the fruit trees that grew on the hill where they lived in these three wall shacks. Yeah. Like that's what they lived off of until there was work. Mm-hmm. Right. But you put these artisans to work and give them meaningful work and you're changing lives. So it's a tide that raises all ships is what we're talking about here. So I'm super excited to get some details ironed out. And for the listener's sake, again, jump into the show notes today and see where we're at. Now, we don't have all the wrinkles out yet, but we're close. We're super close. There'll be a trip in the works, multiple trips, I'm sure. And uh, you know, for those of you who don't know as well, and I don't know if you knew this, JB, or not, but our family's mission as our kids age is we want to establish our own orphanage or training center in Guatemala fuel it through entrepreneurial endeavor. So these kids are being trained with entrepreneurial skill sets because the internet works everywhere. So why not? And that's one of our visions. So that, you know, of all the countries you could have named today, that one resonates with our family more strongly than, than any other. It's our favorite place uh, that we've ever been as a family to Antigua, right outside Guatemala city in Guatemala, which happens to be the poor. People think Mexico is poor. No. Mexicans live like kings compared to Guatemalans. <laughs> yes, they sure do. <laughs> and you know the, the average income for the Guata, for Guatemalans is is just is a paltry, yeah. uh, abysmal. And I'll I'll leave the listeners with one other visual. You know, we had the misfortune of losing our passports while we were in Guatemala. Uh, we actually got pickpocketed, lost our passports. So here we 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 go to the U.S. embassy. And we walk right in the front doors and they welcome us in and we meet some kind professional Americans who live in country and they're helping us with our situation. And we look out the window and as far as you can see down the street, just blocks and blocks and blocks, are Guatemalans lined up trying to get into that same embassy. And I thought I knew what it was about and it was confirmed when I asked the agent. I was like, what are these people doing here? It's like the same thing they do every day. 
They're trying to move the 100-mile process forward one inch so that they can get to the United States. Yes. That is their dream. The next best thing is to work for an American in a business opportunity of some kind. Uh, That's the country of Guatemala just 10 short years ago that I experienced. Uh, So, yeah, I have a heart for that nation. And uh, I think some special things are going to happen as our partnership develops. I think so too, man. And and I would say one last thing to the listeners who have a heart for what I would call entrepreneur activism, right? So combining what we naturally are inclined to do as entrepreneurs and a heart to serve others well. My partner, Tim, is great with statistics and he has a lot more experience with this, but he tells a story about there's a research study that was done on poverty, just general poverty in third world countries. So whether that's Haiti or Guatemala or Philippines, all these places. And what they found was charities often have their heart is in the right place. Christian charities, secular charities, doesn't matter. The way a charity operates is often very counterproductive and and almost can be crippling and dangerous because what happens is they'll go in and they'll begin to do everything for folks. They're just going to handouts, 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 handouts. And it creates this toxic situation where um, folks really aren't learning skills. To your point, there is a real issue with self-worth. Think about that. If you're not, if you don't feel like you're contributing to the value of your society and place where you live, that's an issue. So what did they figure out was the most beneficial thing that can be done in these villages? It was actually employing and empowering women. Giving them meaningful work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and women in particular, because what yeah. they found was in these villages, often women are the, the glue. And what's so true in my house, women are the glue that hold mm-hmm. everything together. And if you can empower these women and to give them jobs and to help them to um, bless their own families and to enrich the lives of their own village, there is no greater thing that you can do to help a community. So we're doing this in Guatemala. We actually have a partner who is a, a client who is a multiple Grammy award winner. Get this, how cool this business can be. Multiple Grammy award winning musician who's retired, doesn't tour anymore and got involved with Haiti, realized some of the same things that have happened. And now we can do the same thing in Haiti. We can have um, products made there that bless the folks there and they're beautiful products that in a million years you couldn't get from a machine in China. And you couldn't tell the story behind what these products being sourced in these communities and these countries are really doing for these folks. So yeah, some really, I get very passionate and animated about this. I love China too. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy going there and I love anything entrepreneurial, but there's an added sense of mission when it comes to what we're doing with, uh, with our clients in Central America because of mm-hmm. the impact that it really makes on those folks. Yeah, well, it, there's a different spirit. Guatemala is a family-based, very Catholic, Bible-based culture. China, mm-hmm. just, China just isn't. So, and you, you end up in a very different place as a culture, regardless of what your worldviews are. You can't argue that you end up at a different place as a culture. Sure. But, you know, kids are just beloved treasures in Guatemala. In China, you kind of feel like a bit of a number. I mean, we adopted we have adopted a child from both cultures here. I know yeah. what I'm I know what I'm yeah. talking about. All right, yeah. we've yeah. got five kids, two biological, three international adoptions: Guatemala, China, and Russia. Uh. And you're kind of treated like a number in China, unfortunately. Guatemala is just not that way. So it's very you can you can make more of an impact there. We speak their language, but something I wanted to speak to, and I want you to be prepared to talk about. You've mentioned stories a few times. I want you to talk about the proven audience formula, the story stuff that you guys are digging into as we start to land the plane. But I just want to, re- one of the things you just said resonated with me. Are you familiar with the concept of uh, seeds of resentment? Have you heard that phrase before? 
planting seeds of resentment. It ties, it sounds vague to me, but I think I have, but I'd, I'd ties very beautifully into what you just said. It, it's a biblical concept. Basically, if JB, let's just say, you know, you were concerned about my well-being. So you started showing up every day at three o'clock every day at my house and laid a hundred dollar bill on the front porch and walked away. Mm-hmm. Just walked away. Nothing asked just because you're a kind, awesome, nice guy. Mm-hmm. The first week I'd be like, wow, what a kind, awesome, nice guy. By mm-hmm. about month three or four, I'd be like, who does he think he is? Why does he yeah. think he has this control over me? And I'd start resenting you mm-hmm. because there's no reciprocity. So seeds of resentment is what it's considered in the Hebrew <sighs> culture when you have no reciprocity in a relationship and it's just give, 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 give. It's also what enablers do. Yes. They're actually part of the problem. <laughs> they think Absolutely. they're helping when all they're doing is enabling bad yeah. behavior. Culturally, we've done this as a nation. We have people whose entire sustenance depends on the generosity of their fellow taxpayers, yet almost to a person, they have zero patriotism about the nation. You don't see American flags raving in their front yard because they're getting a welfare check and they're just proud of their night. Now, that's not everybody. Of course, there's exceptions. But to a great degree, we've created people who resent the very nation that's feeding their children. Yes. How does that happen? It, it's not a lack of character on their part. It's the concept of seeds of resentment. Mm-hmm. So culturally, you talked about these ministries that go in and they try to bring resources in and, and change lives. You've got to give them something meaningful to, they can do in recip- with reciprocity. Uh, so they're getting paid for a fair day's work, a good wage, right? And as the company grows, they get paid more and they're put into leadership positions. That's why business is the solution. Entrepreneurship is the solution. So yes. it's not this distinction in my mind between a ministry and, an, and a business. Going in, it's the same thing. Yeah. You, may, you may have a, be a black-hearted, mean dude, but if you start a business... In a culture like Guatemala, you're going to raise the tide of a lot of families, even if yes. you're a cruel, selfish, mean old dude. Yes. Kicks your dog and cusses at kids. You're still raising the tide for that entire culture because you're giving them something meaningful that they can show up, work hard, do with pride. And so I, I, this all really resonates with me, man. But so this doesn't become like the marathon episode of all podcasts. We need to <laughs> it. I do want to hear your thoughts on how you've incorporated the proven audience formula. There's a book by that title, the link mm-hmm. will be in the show notes, guys, go check it out. It's very inexpensive sure. on Amazon. It's a great book full of examples, but how have you applied those concepts telling stories to help you sell your products? Sure. So I actually had the fortune to be one of the first inner circle folks to see that content before it became mainstream. And I was so excited about it because it's the direction that we're going and it's where my instincts were bringing me anyway. And it's where Tim and Kate and I and our business with our own product side. So we operate with divisions and we have a products division and with our products division, for example, uh, we have a number of products that are made in Guatemala that are artisanally made. They are, um, some of them are wood, some of them are leather and they're in a particular niche. Well, what we figured out was Instagram, maybe a little bit more than Facebook. And there's some shifting dynamics there within social media, but Instagram in particular and YouTube were two areas where we would just begin to tell the story of these products and, and how they were made, who made them. And then, of course, there's a utility of these product, what it's used for. It's either obvious or not, and you tell the story of that. Well, what started happening was, again, no giveaways. And at this point, no pay-per-click. We weren't even doing pay-per-click. And we were selling out quickly because what we figured out was there were influencers who were picking up on what we were doing. And when I say influencer, I mean almost any niche you can think of. 
has these influencers who folks look to to set tone, pace, and trends for Mm -hmm. whatever that is. And so for us, those influencers began to sort of organically gravitate towards some of our products. And through those influencers, we were able to find audiences Mm -hmm. and and tap in 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 a way to some of their audiences. And a a specific example of this would be one of those products. One of the influencers reached out to me and said, these products are so awesome. I really would like to, to have you guys jump into this private Facebook group that nobody even knew existed. I'd never heard of it. And so I jump into this Facebook group and I'm thinking, candidly, I'm thinking, oh, that's really nice, but I'm sure he's going to do it. I'm sure it's going to be you know, 50 people in a group or something sitting around mm-hmm. talking. We get in there. There are thousands of people in this really esoteric Facebook group that are super active and passionate about this little niche that we happen to be in. And we are the only person, the only company that's making these handmade awesome products. There's, there are commoditized products from China, from other countries that you can buy if you're into this niche, but we're the only ones who are doing story-driven, artisanally made products and people, we can't keep those on the shelf, Jim. Biggest challenge we're having right now with those products in Guatemala is not expecting our Guatemalan suppliers to grow too fast because in Central America, it's a bit different. You know, They have to be a bit more intentional about the speed that they grow their, their operations. So the whole concept to us of the proven audience formula is deeply integrated with every single thing we do. We always ask ourselves when we're looking to launch a product, A, who is going to buy this and why? B, is there an existing community where we can go and source ideas about how we should or should not create this product? Also, C, can we build up some excitement around it before we even launch it such that we can launch a product and we immediately have a group of folks who are eager to buy it. And then they start giving you ideas. They start saying, we love this widget that you guys have. We sure would love this widget with another thing attached to it or made out of this different material. And it becomes this really neat organic interaction and relationship between you as a company and your customers. And to me, tying this ball back in a bow as an entrepreneur, not only is that more fun and and I think more stable and in some ways easier, it also drastically improves the value of the business that you own. Because if you can offer a business up for sale that has a raving fan audience behind it, to borrow a phrase from an old book I like, and they're just waiting eagerly for new products of yours to come out, that's that's probably going to sell for a higher multiple than a business that's just making, you know, I would say, advertising or marketing-driven uh, widgets. So. Brilliant. You know, give you a specific of what we're doing. And, and I'm kind of even connecting dots as we're talking. Like, you know, when I'm in Guatemala next, mm-hmm. I'm going to take my cell phone and record some of these great artisans making some of the stuff that they do. Yep. And ask them to explain in their own language how they feel about it. What, what part of themselves is going into this product, right? Two yes. to three minute video. Yeah. Have, have it transcribed in English at the bottom, throw it on Facebook, put $30 behind that ad and just see who it resonates with. With well, no other advantages in my, I don't have an audience that I'm going to. I'm running a cold Facebook ad. Yep. That, that I just described is a multi-million dollar concept. And you don't have to go to Guatemala to do this. You could go to the guy down the street uh-huh. that does, because the story is what compels people in. It gets them interested. And they'll tell you, the public will vote. You show that video to 3,000 people and you see how many likes and shares and tags that it generates and comments, you'll know. Either I'm onto something or 
that was a cool moment that I shared with somebody and it cost me $30 to find out that there may not be anything there. It's one of the two. But what you'll find out very quickly is if it's a compelling story where people can see the heart of the person that's in that video, man, you're onto something and you can build something really, really fast. That's the concept behind proven audience formula. And we're using it to bring our own traffic to Amazon. So no longer do we care if, if Amazon or another competitor is trying to compete with us, the traffic is coming to our own listing to the point where we find ourselves scratching our head this Q4, JB, asking this question. Here's where we're at. Is Amazon justifying the fees that it's charging us? Because we could sell just as many on Shopify. The only reason we're going to still send traffic to Amazon for our products is because that opportunity to rank well and then be seen by strangers. Yes. We're going to send only as much traffic as we have to send mm-hmm. in order to rank well. And then when we start to drop in rank, we'll pull that lever a little bit, send more traffic, bump up and rank again. And then all the other orders go to our own Shopify site. Yes. If that was confusing, listener, go back and listen because there's a lot of intelligent wisdom in its simplicity of what I just said. Mm-hmm. Don't be reliant on one platform. You can grow your own email list. You can grow your own list of followers, grow your own fan base. And it's just not complicated. And it starts with telling great shareable stories, great shareable yes. content. That's the concept behind Proven Amazon course. Well, JB, you've been a brilliant guest today, man. You did a great job. And I know the two of us could do this for about three more hours. And there's plenty <laughs> of listeners. They would probably enjoy that four-hour episode. But yeah. I'm not going to do that to them today. What we'll do is we'll have you back again soon. We've got awesome. lots of great links below, whether you watch it on YouTube or on your favorite podcast listening platform, there's lots of links below that reference all the stuff that JB and I talked about today. If there's a link missing, please send me an email and we'll fix it. You can email me directly if you want, jimcockram at gmail.com. It's the same email address I've had forever. I've got some folks helping me, but I do my best to respond to all email that we get. So share this episode with others, if you don't mind, listener, please. That's, we, we spend zero marketing dollars on this podcast. It's all word of mouth and thousands of people listen to every episode because you share with other people that this is something worth them spending their time doing is listening to our show. So thank you for that. And I want to end by saying, hey, God bless you and yours, JB. Thank you for your time. And listeners, thank you, business building warriors around the world. We're in like 89 countries, something crazy like that, where people are listening to this show. So thank you business building warriors around the world. We are truly forming a special community here. We value you taking time to spending time with us today. God bless you. We'll do this again very, very soon. Thank you for listening to Silent Sales Machine Radio. Visit silentgym.com for a link to our free newsletter, our free Facebook group, and all of our resources mentioned on today's show.